welcome to episode 31 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your incandescent and jocular host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. And I will be talking about two more season three episodes. Episode 9, The Late John, Louisiana, and episode 10, The Last Eden. So let's not delay. Let's go to Hawaii. <laughs> Season 3, Episode 9, The Late John, Louisiana. Air date November 11th, 1970. Directed by Paul Stanley, this is his fifth of 19 episodes. And story by Lionel E. Seeger, this is his only Hawaii Five-O credit. And teleplay by Gerald Ludwig, this is his fourth of 12 episodes. And Eric Bersavisi, this is his fourth of 12 episodes. On Maui, Nick Pearson gets off of a plane and is greeted by his girlfriend, Julie Grant. Unbeknownst to them, they're being followed. At home, they're making a romantic dinner when Pearson notices the stalker outside. Leaving Julie in the kitchen and grabbing a gun from the drawer, he goes outside to confront him. A shot rings out, and Julie runs outside to find the stalker dead. It turns out, Julie is being hunted. Five-O is brought in because the dead man, Tinger, is an associate of known crime boss Harry Kwan. The neighbor says that the couple who lived there are Mr. and Mrs. John Hollander, she fears that Mrs. Hollander might have been kidnapped because though Mr. Hollander works in Honolulu, Mrs. Hollander never leaves Maui. Tinker was killed and buried. The house wiped clean. Pearson and Julie, who is now sporting a blonde wig, are sitting in the parking lot of Pearson's Honolulu apartment building. To avoid suspicion, Pearson instructs Julie to go in and rent the available apartment that is directly across from his. Despite Julie's fears, she does so without a hitch. As soon as the manager leaves, Pearson joins her in the apartment and assures her that they'll leave the island soon. He gives her a sleeping pill so she can rest. Steve talks to Harry Kwan, asking about his business, and mentions the death of former rival John Louisiana before breaking the news about Tinger's death, which Kwan apparently knows nothing about. As soon as Steve leaves, Kwan instructs his man at the end of the bar, Charlie, to find the kid. He hasn't shown up yet. While Nick takes a call in his apartment, Julie dreams about a poker game in which the winner, John Louisiana, was murdered by Harry Kwan and his boys Tinger and Charlie. That's why she's in hiding. She's the only witness, and they want her dead. Julie wakes up with a scream, and Pearson comes in and comforts her. Once she's calmed down, he lets her know that he has an errand to run. While Steve and Dano theorize about who might have gotten Tinger, Pearson, the kid Kwan was looking for, meets with Kwan and finds out he wants to know the same thing. He wants to know what Tinger was doing on Maui and who did him in. Already knowing the answers, Pearson accepts the contract. Back on Maui, Tinger's car is found at the airport. At the house, Che Fong finds a single fingerprint. Pearson mails something to Kwan before getting the paper that's front page is splashed with the Tinger news and going back to the apartment to let Julie know they found Tinger's body. She blames herself for all of this trouble and that they shouldn't have stayed in Hawaii. 
Pearson again reassures Julie that they'll be leaving soon and everything will be okay. Kono says word is that Quan is looking for whoever hit Tinger. This could be a gang war. Someone could be moving in on Quan like he moved in on John Louisiana. There's a contract out, but Kono doesn't know who has it. Quan uses professionals. That's who took out the witness in the Louisiana murder, a cocktail waitress named Julie Grant. Pearson informs Quan that Tinger was messing around with some guy's wife on Maui, got caught, and ended up buried in the yard. Quan says that sounds like Tinger. The couple fled, but Quan insists on Pearson finding the couple. He then shows Pearson an anonymous note warning him that someone is out for him, and insists Charlie accompany him on his next little trip. Reviewing the evidence, 5-0 finds no sign of a gang war, and Quan doesn't seem to know any more about what happened to Tinger than they do. Steve and Dano conclude that the missing Hollanders are the key. Kono confirms that when he comes in with the FBI report on the single fingerprint that Che Fong found. It's Julie Grant's. Turns out that Julie's aunt ID'd not the body because it was too decomposed, but the watch found on the body. So Julie is very much alive. She might have gotten rid of Tinger, but if she did, she had help. Pearson and Charlie are at the Maui airport about to head back to Honolulu after finding nothing. While Charlie gets something from the vending machine, Steve approaches Pearson, whom he knows to be a hitman on Quan's payroll. He plays dumb, but when Steve mentions the contract he had on Julie Grant, his reaction doesn't go unnoticed. Steve and Danny talk to the Hollander's neighbor again, Mrs. Pruitt, showing her several pictures. She doesn't know Quan or Tinger, but she IDs Pearson and Julie as the Hollander's, a very sweet, loving couple. That's why Julie's alive. Pearson fell in love with his target. Which Pearson confesses to Julie over dinner. He comes clean about the contract and his work, none of which Julie knew about. He faked her death by killing another woman who looked similar enough to her and dumping her in a river. He's haunted by that. Julie is obviously shaken by the revelation, but it turns out that having your hitman boyfriend kill someone else to fake your death is a less talked about sign of true love, and she assures him that she'll never leave him. Now that 5-0 knows the score, they're on the hunt for the couple. They find Julie at the apartment building and escort her to 5-0 headquarters, right in front of Quan's man, Charlie. You've heard it all before. Boy has a contract on girl. Boy falls in love with his target. Boy fakes girl's death. Boy and girl attempt to live happily ever after on another island. It's really a tale as old as time. Except that I have a lot of questions. I have so many questions about this episode. And I'm going to start with how did this relationship even happen? My guess is that Pearson got the contract on Julie and must have stalked her for a little while in order to get close to her. I mean, he would have had to hunt her down because she obviously would have gone into hiding. But he would have had to stalk her and try to get close to her in order to kill her. So I guess in that time he fell in love with her. Which, okay, understandable. Happens to the best of us. But he somehow also manages to fall in love with her get her to confess that she's being hunted by this mob boss. So she's obviously feeling comfortable enough with him to explain that. He decides to protect her and he does this by faking her death, but doesn't let her find out about it. So she thinks that they're in hiding still. She thinks Quan is still after her this whole time, this whole two years, when in actuality, he kind of really wasn't looking for her because there was this other body presented that had been ID'd as her and everybody thought she was dead. There is a lot of lying in this relationship. A lot of secrets. I don't think it could have survived as Julie thought it was. I mean, they went through a very intense experience together, but I just don't think that's conducive to a very healthy relationship. And furthermore, 
how in the world did he keep his business from her? I mean, what I'm, it's never explicitly said in the episode what Pearson said that he did as his quote unquote business, because obviously she did not know he was a hitman. I'm just kind of wondering what the cover was that he had to work in Honolulu and had an apartment there. So he worked there often enough. But yeah, I'm just curious what he said that his business was. So I have many questions. I have further questions. The only time we see this crime, so we know why Julie is in hiding, is through a dream. So it's all filmed like with a fisheye lens. It's very weird. Obviously, it's a dream. But my understanding is, is that, so John Louisiana had this poker game. She was the, the cocktail waitress at the poker game. He sent her to go change, I think. She was in another room when, like Hamlet, everybody starts coming out of the curtains and Charlie and Tinker hold John Louisiana down while Harry Kwan stabs him to death. And she witnesses that. And they apparently don't know she's in the apartment until she screams and runs out of the room. I understand that when you're afraid, when the panic kind of starts to set in, you don't make the greatest decisions, but she could have literally just like hid behind the door and they probably would have left and this would have been fine. They wouldn't even have known she existed. But apparently, according to her dream, she actually screamed and ran out of the room and somehow neither one of these bozos was able to catch her. You actually see her running towards the camera and you see Tinger chasing her and he falls over at one point. It's fabulous. So I have questions about the competency of this mob boss. I mean, obviously he must be somewhat good because he managed to quote unquote get rid of the witness and evade Steve's wrath of justice for two years. But your dude fell over, man. And also I wonder how Tinger found out that Julie was still alive. That's the other question they never bring up. Did he just happen to follow Pearson one day to Maui and see her? Because he's at the Maui airport when Pearson arrives and watches Pearson and Julie leave. So he's obviously known that something was up. And that is a question that's never answered is how did, how did Tinker know about any of this? And I'm also curious about the purpose of the note that Pearson sent to Kwan after he agreed to take the contract to look for whoever killed Tinger, which it's like, check the mirror. But it's also quite clever because he knows that he's responsible for Tinger's death. He can take any information he wants back to Kwan and call it good. It's kind of a nice way to keep control over that particular situation. The thing is, is that you see him sending the note that says that the Tinger thing is, is an action against him. But he goes to Kwan with the story of Tinger was screwing around with someone on Maui. Husband found out, killed him, buried him, and the couple took off. So why send the note? I don't understand that part. I just, is it a distraction? So Kwan is looking in another direction when he and Julie finally split? Or what? I don't know. Kind of throws a wrench in the gears when he does insist that the couple be found and be punished because he doesn't want to show any weakness to any rivals that might be encroaching on his business. But I still don't quite get that turn of events. So yeah, this episode, lots of questions. Very few answers. At least satisfying answers for me. And part of that is because the episode does reveal its information slowly. So we get that first scene of Pearson arriving on Maui, he and Julie being followed back to the house, and then later during dinner, Pearson going out and killing Tinger and Julie saying, oh, they found me. So you have this idea of, okay, she's in hiding for some reason. 
And the neighbor kind of confirms that, Mrs. Pruitt, who I love, confirms that because the reason why they even found out that there was a crime was because the neighbor came over because she was supposed to have coffee with the supposed Mrs. Hollander and she wasn't home and she never leaves. She rarely leaves the house and she does not leave Maui at all. So she knew that there was something wrong and she fears that Mrs. Hollander's been kidnapped and that's how they probably, I guess, found, when they were doing a search, found the shallow grave and dug up Tinger instead of Mrs. Hollander. So it was just because of the nosy neighbor that this crime was even discovered as quickly as it was. And it said that he'd been in the ground for like a little while too. I can't remember how long. So they have a head start. So what's interesting about that, again, more questions. The neighbor obviously lives close enough that she comes over for coffee, but not so close that she did not hear the shot that killed Tinger or the screams from Julie over the shot and apparently did not notice any sort of uh, late night gardening or a couple frantically leaving after scrubbing down their house. Now, to be fair, they show the house and there's a wall around it, a low wall around it. It kind of gives the implication that it's, that it is somewhat isolated, but still you'd think the neighbors would have maybe noticed something a little peculiar, but apparently she's not living next to Gladys Kravitz. So it kind of went unnoticed. And Fivo was called in because they recognized Tinger as one of Harry Kwan's boys. Harry Kwan is a mob boss that Steve has been trying to nail for the murder of John Louisiana for a while. And he goes and talks to Kwan at his restaurant slash bar. And Charlie is sitting on the end overhearing the conversation. How's your other business, Harry? The dirty one. I'm just a poor Hopaholly saloon keeper trying to get by. You know that. Sure, I know. I also know about the gambling, prostitution, smack, shake. Yeah, I've, I've heard all those rumors. You got any proof yet? Proof takes time, Harry, but I'm going to get you. Two years ago, John Louisiana got hit. Oh, poor Johnny Louisiana. I almost had you then, Harry. You know the old saying, almost don't come. But maybe this time the witnesses won't disappear so conveniently. What's this time? Your boy Tigger. We found him in a hole in the ground over on Maui. Or didn't you know that? Why should I know? Well, he worked for you, Harry. You signed his checks, remember? I treat my help better than that, huh? You've had a long run, Harry. This time you're finished. I'm gonna close you down hard and fast. Someday, somebody's gonna write a contract on you, my Garrett. And when they do, tell that somebody not to miss. For the record, Hapahali means half white. It typically means half white, half Hawaiian, but I'm not sure that that is particularly the case here. But uh, he's otherwise saying he's biracial. As far as I know, Alfred Ryder, who plays Harry Kwan, is not Hapahali. He's just plain old Holly. So we have another instance of some racist casting. If you've seen Alfred Ryder in other stuff, you'll know they went heavy on the bronzer with him and did some eye work. His eyebrows are magnificent and I'm not sure, I don't think he's wearing any eye prosthetics, but they've obviously done some makeup on the eyes. We made it nine episodes into the third season before our first instance of racist casting. So I guess that's progress. Anyway, Steve talks to him and brings up John Louisiana because that's the crime that Steve is really trying to get him on is for that murder and how he made the witness disappear. 
And then he brings up Tinker and obviously Quan doesn't know anything about it. So he sends Charlie to go find Pearson. The thing is, is that he refers to him as the kid. So we don't know who he's going to look for. And you think maybe he might be talking about Tinker, like to confirm, like that Steve's not just jiving him in line and saying that his boy has been taken out. But then we get Pearson getting the phone call that you don't, you don't hear who's on the other side. And he's like, yes, I'll be there. So you think maybe, yeah, okay, it's business. But then you find out, hey, the business is actually Harry Kwan, that he's the hitman on his payroll. And like I said, it's a brilliant move on his part by taking that contract to find out what happened to Tinger and take care of whoever took him out. So that's the first little reveal twist that we have. And the second comes with Julie's dream. So Julie and Pearson go to Honolulu. They've been hiding in Maui because, again, this is rather clever. She thinks that Quan's still looking for her. And Pearson has convinced her that he won't look nearby. He'll think she ran. Not telling her that he already thinks she's dead. Going to Honolulu again, he's not going to look for her under his nose. And Pearson knows he's not actually looking for her. He's looking for whoever killed Tinger. So he's been keeping all of this from her and he confesses all of this at dinner one night. He tells her that he wants her to leave and then he'll catch up and she doesn't want to leave him. And then she explains that, yes, he had the contract on her, but he fell in love with her and decided to protect her. And that he murdered another woman and dumped her body in the river so people would think it was her. So she's been living this two years on Maui thinking that Quan is still looking for her when actually he hadn't been. It was just happenstance that Tinger found her. So all of that, all of these beans get spilled. Like all of it. And she's sitting there and, and she's obviously processing all of this. And her conclusion is to comfort him and tell him that she will never leave him. So apparently I have never experienced the love of someone who would murder someone else and fake my death so we could live happily ever after. And I'm not going to lie, I'm a little jealous of that. But I'm also questioning her judgment skills because she's been with a man for two years who has done nothing but lie to her. As I said, I don't think this is the basis for a healthy relationship. Anyway, in Pearson's apartment building, he knows that the neighbor across the hall is subletting his apartment. And so he rigs it with Julie to go in and sublet that apartment so it'll be right there. And he can keep an eye on her. They'll be close together. She'll be safe. And of course, She's in disguise and she's wearing this beautiful pink dress, but a really platinum blonde wig. And the thing is, is like, it's, it's a wig. It looked like a wig. It's a wig. But back in the day, back in the sixties, in the early seventies, white women wearing hair pieces and wearing wigs was not uncommon. So even though the manager would have seen her with the dark sunglasses and the blonde wig, he wouldn't have immediately thought, ah, yes, this woman is in disguise. She's trying to conceal her identity. He would have thought, hmm, she thinks that looks good. Okay. So she's able to sublet that apartment without any suspicion. Nick then goes in and gives her the sleeping pill so she can get some rest because obviously they've had a very busy 24, 48 hours. Very stressful 24, 48 hours. And that's when he goes and meets with Harry. And Harry puts out the contract on basically Pearson. But this also lets Pearson know for a fact that Quan does not know that Julie is alive. He does not know what Tinker was doing on Maui. So A, he can make up any story that he wants to, and B, he knows that Julie is safe, reasonably safe. Pearson actually does have a little bit of control over this situation, as I said. And he's orchestrating things to keep Julie safe and to also get them out of Honolulu. 
Well, guess what? I'm not the only one who has questions. So does Steve. Because we know that Tinger is dead. We know that he's Harry Kwan's boy. We know that Harry Kwan doesn't know what's going on. So immediately, Steve thinks it is probably a gang war. Someone's moving in on him like he moved in on John Louisiana. So somebody's trying to take over his business. And then Kono comes back with the information because Kono is our man on the street and comes back with the information that there is no gang war. But because Kwan doesn't know what's going on, but he does want the guy who got Tinger and so there's a contract out. And that leads 5-0 to Pearson because they know he's on his, as a hitman on his payroll. But there's a lot of speculation about what Tinger's death means. They keep bringing up John Louisiana because that's the case that Steve wants to get Quan on. They don't tie everything together because as they said, Quan has a habit of making witnesses disappear like the cocktail waitress, Julie Grant. They think Julie's dead. So that's how we actually find out that nobody is actually looking for Julie. They all think Julie is dead and Tinger just happened to stumble upon her being alive and she was he was confirming it and also, I think, looking forward to getting Pearson into trouble with Quan. Or I might be reading too much into facial expressions, I don't know. But the point is, is that 5-0 believes her to be dead. This is refuted later when they get the one fingerprint from that house back. The house has been wiped clean for the most part. They knew that. They had Che Fong go in and look and Che Fong finds one fingerprint. And the best part about that is, is where he finds that fingerprint would A, be a logical place for a fingerprint to be and B, be a logical place to be missed when wiping down a house. So I did kind of like that little bit of forensics. And they get the print back from the FBI and the FBI says, oh, hey, this is Julie Grant. And they're like, uh, she's been dead for two years. And Steve's like, yes, but she was alive two days ago. Steve immediately rules out zombies. I appreciate that. So they realize that there is some major deception happening and now they're tying her into Tinger. So Tinger found her. They think she killed him. They think she obviously had to have help because she buried him. So now they're looking for this supposedly dead woman. And since Steve knows that Pearson is on Quan's payroll, what a coincidence that they happen to meet up at the Maui airport because Quan has sent Pearson and Charlie back to Maui to look for this couple. And they're on their way back to Honolulu after finding nothing because Pearson knew they weren't going to find anything. And that's why he consented to go on that little day trip. Which, by the way, there is a lot of going back and forth between Honolulu and Maui. And I had to look it up. According to current Google, it's only about a 40-minute flight from Honolulu to Maui. So them going back and forth, while it's a lot, it would be a lot more in today's time because of security and everything like that. Back in the day, it probably wouldn't have been too much to grab a ticket real quick. Steve would probably just flash his badge and hop on a flight to Maui. And so, cause they go back and forth quite a bit during this investigation and then so does Pearson and Charlie. So it's feasible. Anyway, they cross paths at the airport and that's when Steve asks him about what happened to Tinger and also about the contract on Julie Grant. You can tell Harry Kwan that his smoke screen didn't work. I don't know what you're talking about. You got the contract again, Nick? Now this is something I've never heard before. Maybe you'll have better luck this time. What's that supposed to mean? Julie Grant. Never heard of her. Sure, Nick, sure. You're still looking for her. She's still alive. So? So I'm gonna keep it. 
So Steve kind of knows that Pearson screwed up in some form and that the wrong person was killed at the very least because they do have a body and the body was so decomposed that the aunt could not identify it and she was identified by her jewelry. I think in today's time she would have been identified by DNA but didn't have that back in 1970. So they went with what they had. So Steve knows that Pearson's at least killed the wrong person. Steve and Danny go talk to Mrs. Pruitt, who IDs Julie and Pearson as Mr. and Mrs. Hollander. And that's when they all clicks together. He fell in love with his hit and went so far as to fake her death. But somehow Tinger found out. So all the pieces are coming together. So again, as they said before, their key to this situation was finding Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Hollander. And it hasn't changed. They still need to find the Mr. and Mrs. Hollander. And they find Julie at the sublet apartment because I guess they know where Pearson lives. So they go and check that apartment and Steve finds a bobby pin in there. So they know that he's had a woman in there because Pearson is played by Don Stroud. Don Stroud doesn't need bobby pins. And they go to the recently sublet apartment. The manager lets them in because they think she's not home and she's standing right there. And so when they escort her to HPD, they do so as Charlie is pulling up probably to meet Pearson, to meet with Pearson, and they see Julie coming out. So now Charlie knows that Julie is alive and Pearson's been lying. Obviously, things take a turn for the worst for our happy couple because Julie gets taken in by 5-0. And then Pearson goes to talk to Quan, and Charlie has already spilled the beans to Quan, and obviously it doesn't go over well with Quan. Charlie ends up jumping Pearson from behind and has and is holding him with his arms held behind his back. And Quan slaps him twice. And for whatever reason, it doesn't have the effect that I think it's supposed to have. Because I guess it's supposed to show Quan is a badass and he means business and he's a violent man. And instead, he's slapping Don Stroud. And so it just, it doesn't have that effect. It looks like Don Stroud could easily push Charlie off of him and take out Quan. But he doesn't. He gets hit by Quan and Quan explains to him, you're going to honor this contract. I'm not happy with you lying. You're going to honor this contract and I'm going to take care of you once you do. Now that they know that Julie is at HPD, it's going to be a lot more difficult for him to do this. Meanwhile, Quan gets taken in to HPD because Steve is adamant that if Julie identifies Quan, 5-0 and HPD will be able to protect her and that they can get him for murder and send him away for a long time where he can't hurt her. Obviously, because she's afraid and because she's also trying to protect Pearson. Because remember, she loves him. And when Steve brings up that he is a cold-blooded killer, she kind of ignores that. She loves him. She doesn't want to get in trouble. So she refuses to identify him. When they escort her out of the room, the matron does. They escort her out of the room. Down the hallway, it's the matron and Danny. They walk past a uniformed police officer. You don't think anything about it until that police officer clocks Danny in the back of the head. Sorry about your head, Dan. And takes off with Julie and the police officer turns out to be Pearson. I love the way that the shot is done because you are honestly not expecting that to happen. You're watching Julie be escorted down the hallway by these two people past the uniformed cop. Of course there would be a uniformed cop standing in a hallway at HPD, especially when you have a suspect and you have a witness in a room down the hall. It is nothing out of ordinary. They do nothing to draw attention to that officer. It just happens suddenly and goes. I love the way it's done. It's perfect. So of course, Julie sees this as a rescue and so does Pearson. And it's a short-lived rescue because once they get into the car and start to flee, they realize that Quan has insured against a double cross. Charlie is in the back seat and he's there to ensure that the contract be fulfilled to Quan's expectations. 
I don't think it's a spoiler to tell you that the contract doesn't get fulfilled, but I will say it was a close call. You know what's a good call? Discast cast. Let's take a closer look at them. As I said, Nick Pearson was played by Don Stroud. This is his first of three episodes. He was also in an episode of the 2010 Hawaii Five-O. He was Sergeant Mike Verrick on Mrs. Colombo, Captain Pat Chambers on the new Mike Hammer, Kahuna on the new Gidget, Captain Lusson on the 89 Dragnet. He also turned up in episodes of The Virginian, Adam 12, Heck Ramsey, Marcus Welby, Banachek, Cannon, Gunsmoke, Streets of San Francisco, The Rookies, SWAT, Policewoman, Super Train, The Dukes of Hazard, Heart to Heart, Trapper John M.D., Chips, Knott's Landing, The Fall Guy, Fantasy Island, Matt Houston, The A-Team, Jake and the Fat Man, MacGyver, Murder, She Wrote, The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., Babylon 5, and Nash Bridges. He appeared in the movies Django Unchained, The Haunted Sea, Soldier Boys, Carnosaur 2, Frogtown 2, Cartel, License to Kill, Armed and Dangerous, The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia, The Amityville Horror, The Buddy Holly Story, Sudden Death, The Killer Inside Me, The House by the Lake, Joe Kidd, Angel Unchained, Tick, 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 and Coogan's Bluff. And he was in the TV movies, The Deadly Dream, Rolling Man, The Elevator, High Risk, Katie, Portrait of a Centerfold, Murder Me, Murder You, More Than Murder, The Return of Mickey Spillane's Mike Hammer, and Mike Hammer, Murder Takes All. Julie Grant was played by Marion McAndrew. This is her second of two episodes. We also saw her in A Bullet for McGarrett. Harry Kwan, as I said, was played by Alfred Ryder. He turned up in episodes of The Untouchables, Dr. Kildare, The Naked City, Route 66, The Outer Limits, Wagon Train, Star Trek, The Virginian, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, The Wild Wild West, The Man from Uncle, Invaders, Ironside, Mission Impossible, Search, Mannix, The FBI, Kojak, Heck Ramsey, Cannon, Ellery Queen, Charlie's Angels, and Buck Rogers. He appeared in the movies Escape to Witch Mountain, W, The Stone Killer, the Legend of Hillbilly John, True Grit, Hotel, Hamlet, the 1964 version, in The Raiders, and he was in the TV movies Probe, Indict and Convict, The Abduction of St. Anne, and St. Matlovich vs. the U.S. Air Force. Charlie Kalis was played by the beloved Al Harrington. This is his second of five episodes before he joined the cast as Ben Kukua. We previously saw him in the episode The Box. Mrs. Pruitt was played by Hilo Hattie. This is her second of two episodes. We also saw her in Strangers in Our Own Land. The apartment manager was John Alexis Howard. This is his second of nine episodes. He was also an uncredited extra in Savage Sunday. Tinger was played by John Lebrecht. This is his only credit. John Louisiana was played by Walter P. Young Sr. This is his second of six episodes. We also saw him in Not That Much Different. The Corner was played by Quan Hai Lim. This is his second of 25 episodes. We also saw him in The One with the Gun. And Harmon was played by Herb Rogers. This is his only credit. The story by credit goes to Lionel E. Seeger. This is his only episode of Hawaii Five-O. However, he has writing credits for 139 episodes of Peyton Place, three episodes of Ben Casey, three episodes of Then Came Bronson, three episodes of Mannix, two episodes of Longstreet, three episodes of The Bold Ones, The New Doctors, five episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man, three episodes of The Bionic Woman, and two episodes of Danger Bay. 
He also has writing credits for the TV movies Run, Simon, Run, Weekend of Terror, The Heist, USA Bright and Dark, If I Had a Million, Exo Man, The Ultimate Imposter, and Spider-Man The Dragon's Challenge. And he has writing credits for the TV miniseries Hoover vs. the Kennedys, The Second World War, and Harold Robbins, 79 Park Avenue. And that is The Late John, Louisiana. I'm not a big fan of this episode. It's okay. I think it's a little messier than I would have liked. While I appreciate the layers of deception and the lengths that Pearson went to to keep Julie safe, I think it gets a little bit confusing and a little bit muddy. And like I said, I have a lot of questions about how all of this plays out. So for me, it's more work to watch it than it is enjoyable because there are so many questions and it is a little bit confusing. It took a couple viewings for me to get it. So I think it suffers a little bit from trying to do too much. But you do get to watch Don Stroud for an hour and that is never a bad thing. So while I don't particularly enjoy this one, I don't think it's one to avoid. Give it a watch. I don't get it. Why? Love. Gonna love. What we got here are two people in love. Hiya, Steve. Jimmy, you have something to say? <laughs> I didn't do it. Blast took place approximately 4 a.m. Fire trucks were there within 10 minutes. They found him leaning against his car. A bottle of booze on the floor inside, almost empty, and a bunch of detonated caps in the trunk. Well, I still didn't do it. Then what were you doing there, Jimmy? That's a good question. I wish I could answer it. Why can't you answer? Well, I don't know. I can't remember anything. Oh, come on, Steve. You know me a long time. This is not my style. Yeah, a long time. Now, look, Jimmy, you better think hard. That plant was totaled. Now, this is not another nightclub brawl. Steve, this is Mr. Goff, the plant manager. It just got more complicated. Come on in. All right. Go. Somebody was inside the plant when he blew. Not much left of him now. Any identification? It was Harmon, one of our watchmen. No one else was on duty. Steve, Jay Fox got something. Get the details, Jen. Episode 10, The Last Eden, air date November 18th, 1970, directed by Paul Stanley. This is his six of 19 episodes and written by Gerald Ludwig. This is his fifth of 12 episodes and Eric Bersavisi. This is also his fifth of 12 episodes. Nightclub singer Jimmy Nuanu is brawling with a patron, as you do, while his son Joey watches and two suits admire his violent tendencies. The fight breaks up, and Jimmy heads back to his dressing room, where his friend Eddie gives him hell about fighting. It seems Jimmy is a very outspoken environmentalist and took offense by the Howley heckling him for it. Eddie gets Jimmy a drink of water before taking Jimmy's son Joey home so they can hit up the after party. Unfortunately, Jimmy never makes it. He passes out after stumbling to his car while the two suits look on appreciatively. Jimmy and his car are then transported to a sewage plant where a guy in a wetsuit blows it up from the water. Jimmy wakes up to the sound of environmental terrorism. Ginny is fending off the incessant phone calls from reporters as Jimmy is brought in. Danny shows Steve the explosives found in Jimmy's trunk. Steve talks to Jimmy, who swears he didn't do it. He has no idea what happened because he can't remember anything. Jin then brings in the manager of the sewage plant. In Steve's office, he informs him that a night watchman was in the plant when it blew. Now it's murder. 
Once the manager leaves, Che Fong shows Steve a tire impression left by a vehicle other than Jimmy's car. Also, the explosives used were difficult to handle. Only someone with experience, like the kind Jimmy had working demo in the army, could have done it. And everyone knew Jimmy hated that sewage plant. Jimmy looks too good for it, and Steve has no choice but to book his friend. Later in jail, Steve talks to Jimmy, who continues to stick to his story. He'll admit to the fight, but not to the murder explosion. He also asks Steve to call Eddie and have him look after Joey. In Steve's office, the bartender says that Jimmy wasn't drinking any more than usual. The next witness, Eddie, says that Jimmy was cooled off by the time Eddie left to take Joey home, and he didn't think much about Jimmy not showing up to his own party. Sometimes he meets a chick and ghosts everybody. Jimmy comes into the office free on bail and is pissed that Steve had asked for no bail at all. Steve says he thought staying in jail might keep him out of trouble. Jimmy swears again that he's being set up, and Steve again tells him that he looks good for it. Jimmy reminds him of the consequences of his son growing up without him and further twists the knife by saying that Hawaiians trust Steve despite him being Howley because he's always been on their side. In a shocking turn of events, Eddie is part of this conspiracy against Jimmy as he needed the money to pay off gambling debts, though his conscience is getting the best of him. Head suit Walter Colfax of Colfax Corporation assures him that he's doing the right thing. His company came up with a way to clean up the ocean and process sewage in a more environmentally friendly way, but the politicians have repeatedly let them down by not passing a particular bill. Blowing up the sewage plant was an extreme measure to push for progress, but Jimmy is a hero, even though he didn't do it. And that death was an unfortunate accident. Eddie seems pacified, but the suits are concerned with his nervousness. Steve doesn't like neat cases, and the one against Jimmy is way too neat. 5-0 decides to zero in on the explosives. The construction man that Chin talks to says that his stuff is carefully locked up and monitored. Besides, only the military has what they're looking for. Meanwhile, Danny talks to a retired Royal Navy officer who is an expert in explosives. And Kono checks with the Army, who swears all of their stuff is accounted for except that it's not. One case is missing. Oops. Steve talks to an ecology professor who is an absolute comrade and explains that ecology is very much so about money and greed. He then informs Steve that the sewage plant explosion might have been done to push through some legislation for which the Colfax Corporation would benefit. Steve finds Jimmy at a party and questions him about Walter Colfax and his corporation. Jimmy isn't familiar with them. Once again, Steve makes a point to tell Jimmy he looks too good for this, pissing Jimmy off yet again. After Steve leaves, Eddie comes out to check on Jimmy and finds he's made a very important decision. His only way out of this is to find who set him up and get him himself. So I find this to be a thematically interesting episode because we're, what we're dealing with is corporate-motivated environmental terrorism for the purpose of profit. Now, it's interesting because typically when we think about corporations and their greed, it comes at the expense of the environment, that they don't care about the environment. They will ransack this planet to get everything that they can out of it and sleep perfectly well at night, knowing they're killing the planet, as long as they can sleep on their mountains of gold. It's very much still a, a current issue today with the resistance to switch over to renewable resources, the denial of climate change, anything to make a buck and keep the status quo. We have a very interesting little flip in here in that their corporate greed is still very much at the heart of this, except it is that this corporation has found a more environmentally friendly way of cleaning up the beaches and taking care of the sewage 
but because of the legislation not getting through, they've sunk a whole lot of money into this and haven't been able to do anything with it. So they result to environmental terrorism in order to force the government's hand and push through this bill, which they will profit from. So profit is still very much the motivator here. Greed is still very much the motivator here. But instead of doing it at the expense of the environment, the environment would actually somewhat benefit from this. So it's a bit of a twist on a, a common theme, but also kind of reflects this still very hostile attitude toward the tr tree huggers, so to speak, in that the people who are environmentalists are still seen as somewhat unreasonable and unhinged. And we get that with Jimmy because he's brawling with Howley, who was heckling him as he was doing his nightclub act. And he sings, but he also preaches about Hawaii being the last Eden and how it's being destroyed by colonization and pollution. And he's very right. It was happening back in 1970, and it's happening today. Extractive tourism is a huge problem in Hawaii. And the development that continues in the islands is to the detriment of the environment and of the, the residents and the native Hawaiians who live there. What is old is new again. So again, we have something that was very current events and timely happening back in 1970 when this episode came out, and it also is still today. And Jimmy represents the voice of the Hawaiian people in this. I should note that Ray Danton, who plays Jimmy, while he is Secret Agent Super Dragon, and if you watch Mystery Science Theater, you know what I'm talking about, the theme song is humming in my head constantly every time I watch this episode. I can't help it. It's been stuck in my head for days now because that's all I can think when I see him. But he's actually quite a good actor and he does his best to attempt to affect a Hawaiian accent because native Hawaiians and Hawaiian residents do have a bit of an accent. Royden is not Hawaiian. He is a more olive-complected tan man. I think they might have bronzed him up a little bit or he, he tanned up a little bit. But yeah, he's, he's not Hawaiian. But he represents the Hawaiian interests, and naturally the Hawaiians would be very vocal about the colonization and destruction of their lands. And I'm on their side, 100%. So it's Jimmy's environmentalism and his preaching during his acts about this that makes him the perfect target to be used as a patsy. Because that's who's admiring his brawling techniques. It's Walter Colfax and one of his men who has a name, and I should have probably made note of that. Anyway, they see him as the perfect fall guy for their plot, which has a lot of working parts as we get into it. And they've clearly done their research because they know that Jimmy was in the army. They know he worked in demolitions. They know he handled the particular explosive that they end up using. He's, as Steve calls him, a hot-headed Hawaiian, which I kind of bristle every time I hear that. It seems very stereotypical to me. But he, it fits the bill that he does have a temper. It's very easy for them to set him up. And they do so by drugging him and getting him out to the sewage plant. So he's there and wakes up to the explosion. But he's got the, I believe it's the blasting caps. I don't think it's actually the explosives, but I think it's the blasting caps that are found in his trunk. And of course he was there and everybody knew he hated the sewage plant and so the speculation is that he had just enough to drink to think that this would be a great idea and somehow obtained these explosives and went out and blew up the sewage plant. And unfortunately, there was a night watchman inside and he died. 
and it all looks really good. There's only the one little niggling thing is that there they found tire impressions from another vehicle that was not Jimmy's car, but everything else, it's like, it's gift wrapped. It's perfect. Except this is never brought up. This bothers me. So this case is supposed to be rock solid against Jimmy. The problem is, is that he was so drunk or he, they decided that he was drunk and he said he was so drunk. He fell down getting, going to his car. He passed out before he even made it to his car. He couldn't have driven. But anyway, they said that he was drinking and that he was drunk enough that he decided this was a good idea. However, the explosive that he used, they make a point of saying that an expert would have to use it. Someone who's experienced with this explosive would have had to use it and that it was very tricky stuff. So one false move, I'm guessing, and you would have blown yourself up. Do we really believe that someone who is inebriated, even if they were an expert, would be able to successfully set up this explosive, this tricky special explosive, and not blown themselves to bits. That is something they never addressed, and I think they should have, because that is a, a key component, I think, to also say suggesting that this was a setup. Because for whatever reason, everybody witnessed Jimmy drinking. There was no question that he had been drinking, and he admits to passing out. But nobody questions if his sobriety in handling this supposedly very tricky explosive. They question his sobriety in regards to his decision-making skills, but not with his hand-eye coordination. To me, that's suspect. That should have also rung a bell for Steve, but it apparently didn't. What rings the bell for Steve is that this case is too neat. He does not like things gift-wrapped and handed to him. And that's what it feels like to him. Now, he can't deny that Jimmy looks very good for it, and he does end up having him arrested and booked and then asks for no bail so he could, because he thinks it'll keep Jimmy out of trouble, which, of course, Jimmy takes terrible offense to. Feels pretty good to be free again. You're only free on bail, Jimmy. And no thanks to you, pal. Hey, McGarrity, he recommends no bail. Just like a real buddy. I figured you'd be better off where you couldn't get into any more trouble. This is no joke, Jimmy. A man is dead and there's $2 million worth of damage and you're the only suspect. Yeah, 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 me. I'm the only suspect. Now, look, Steve, I told you once, I'm going to tell you again. I didn't do it. Now, whatever I was drinking last night, it hit me so hard I couldn't even walk, not just drive the car. And as far as blowing up the plant is concerned, well, you know. What about the detonator caps in your car and the fact that you know how to use them? I tell you, Steve, someone is framing me. They pull all that stuff there, and me. Why? Why would they do that, Jimmy? Because they need a patsy. And you're the patsy? That's right, I qualify. Lots of guys know what I did in the army. Yeah, I guess a lot of people remember how you felt about that plant. I suppose there are a couple hundred witnesses who have heard you say time and again that uh, somebody ought to go out and blow up the place. Okay, okay, so I shoot my mouth off once or twice in the club. I always do. Maybe a saloon is not the best place to talk about ecology, but it's the only place I got. The prosecuting attorney thinks you got drunk enough last night to go out and do some violence. And as you say, Jimmy, you qualify. Jimmy, again, emphasizes that he believes that he's being framed, that he's being set up. And Steve begins to agree with that, especially since he doesn't like neat cases. The problem is, is that Steve, every interaction that he seems to have with Jimmy, he reminds him that he looks too good for this. But he does it in such a way that it comes across as him believing more that Jimmy did it than not that Jimmy's being set up. 
Like he's not saying it in such a way that suggests that he's like, you don't understand. I need everything that you can give me because you look perfect for this. And I believe that you, you're being set up. I need help. I need any information you can give me because we have to find the hole here. I can understand him wanting to maintain his own objectivity, but he never broaches that with Jimmy. It always sounds like he's rehashing the case against him as if he believes it. He never gives him that confidence that I think Jimmy needs, which obviously is a plot device. So Jimmy makes this horrible decision of going off on his own to try to find out who set him up. So that's necessary. But it still kind of bugs me that we've seen Steve give people that courtesy prior. So not seeing it here and he's supposed to be friends with Jimmy, it really kind of bugs me. But Steve and Five O are working this case because Steve doesn't like neat cases. So we do get to see some very interesting police work because they don't have a lot of evidence outside of what's been handed to them, which implicates Jimmy. They decide to focus on the explosives because the explosives are hard to get. They are, it's a very tricky kind. They say the name multiple times. I cannot pronounce it. I've never heard of it. But then again, I don't frequently handle explosives. So outside of this tire print that they have, they know didn't come from Jimmy's car. All they have is the explosives. And so they go asking about explosives. Chin goes and talks to a construction person who informs him that all of their stuff is very, very carefully accounted for. It's not even kept on site. It's kept in a special location and only he has the key. And when Chin asks him about the specific explosive in question, the guy's like, oh my god, I would love to have that, but it's only the military. And then we later find out when Kono goes and talks to the military that, hey, you have a whole case missing. So that's a real good look for the army, that they're misplacing their explosives. But in between that, we have Danny go and talk to a former captain in the Royal Navy who also has a name, and I just kept referring to him as the boat captain. But my, I couldn't figure out why he was talking to him in the course of the episode, other than obvious reasons that were revealed later. My guess was at the time he was going to talk to this boat captain because he was a, a demolitions expert in the Royal Navy. So he would be experienced with this explosive. And actually when they call him again later to come into 5-0 headquarters, they do so under the guise of asking for his expertise on this. So I'm guessing that's why Danny was talking to him because it's just a brief conversation. So we don't really understand how Danny was tipped off to him. But Kono's the one that comes up with the big hit because he's the one that finds out that the explosives were stolen from the army. However, nothing really ties together for 5-0 until Steve talks to this ecology professor. And when I said this dude is a comrade, straight up comrade. Greed, Mr. McGarrett. Greed and money. That's what ecology's all about. Do I read you right, Professor? Profit, is that what you're talking about? Exactly. One of mankind's most compelling motives... Today, you can equate ecology with sin. Everybody's against the evils, but a handful of people are making too much money to allow conditions to be changed. Fine, fine, Professor, but what about the sewage plant? The one that was blown up? Yes. Good example. If you throw enough garbage or nerve gas into the sea, the fish and the plant life die. Kill the ocean. And you kill the atmosphere. Kill the atmosphere, Mr. McGarrett, and you kill everything and everybody. Yes, Professor, but what I want to know is this. Now that the plant has been destroyed, who, who is going to profit? The people, perhaps. There's a bill that's been pending in the state legislature. 
to require a cleaner system of waste disposal, processing or neutralizing it, so to speak. The new system isn't perfect, but it's an improvement. And the focus of publicity surrounding this Yuanu case may force the bill through finally. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, if that happens, who, who exactly will make money? Walter Colfax, I suppose. The Colfax Corporation has developed an improved system. They've got quite a lot of money invested in it. Colfax. So he's the one that turns Steve on to the Colfax Corporation, telling him they're the ones that would have benefited from the sewage plant blowing up, which really kind of gives them their first big break in the case. And Steve goes and talks to Walter Colfax, who is very much preaching the same gospel that he preached to Eddie, with the exception of not admitting to blowing up a sewage plant, until Steve kind of gets a little pointed about how the Colfax Corporation sort of bought out everybody else that would have benefited from this legislation. And now he basically has a monopoly on garbage. And when it comes to that, Colfax kind of kicks him out of the office and says, we're done talking. And Steve's like, "Mm mm-hmm, okay. But he knows that he's kind of got a bit of a target on his back in the sense that Steve suspects other motives outside of Jimmy's environmentalism. Now, we already know that Colfax is behind all of this, not just because we saw him in the beginning watching Jimmy fight and then watching Jimmy pass out, because at that point we didn't know who he was. We know about it because, in a shocking twist, Eddie is the one who drugged Jimmy and probably took him out to the sewage plant, and he did it for the money. So Colfax obviously got to him and said, hey, we know you're in debt to a gambling syndicate for 10 grand, and it's either pay up or they'll dig you up. And he offered him the money to pay off his debts, and Eddie, being desperate, ended up taking it. But Eddie has this crisis of conscience, which Colfax tries to soothe. And it's not really that effective. Eddie seems placated, but he seems still really bothered by the fact that he is going to send his buddy to jail. So Eddie's having a bit of a crisis of conscience. And that resurfaces again when Jimmy decides that he's going to go after the man who set him up on his own. Because that's the only way he can get Steve off his back and prove his innocence. Because he doesn't believe that Steve is taking him seriously and believes that he's been framed. So he's going to go after the guy himself and he has a lot of friends and that's where he starts calling it in. And of course he confides this to Eddie who knows that he's the one that set him up. And so Eddie goes to Colfax and lets him know what's going on and says that he's concerned and that Jimmy is like a dog with a bone. He doesn't let go. And so of course Colfax is like, don't worry, we'll take care of you. We'll get you to the mainland. You'll be fine. And sends his two goons with him. Unfortunately... What he meant by take care of him was take care of him. And poor Eddie, who has been struggling and feels awful about betraying his friend and felt like he couldn't go to him for help in the first place and is now terrified of his friend, thinks he's actually getting help, bless his heart. And in reality, they throw him off the balcony. And it's a hard scene to watch because you literally see them pick him up And he's struggling with them fighting and yelling. And they just chuck him over the edge. And he ends up landing on someone's clothesline and ruining their laundry. So everybody's having a bad day. Now, the good thing for Jimmy, though, is is that the time that Eddie is murdered, 
he has just found out from one of his friends that Eddie was the one that, that set him up and why he set him up. And it breaks Jimmy's heart. And he wants to find him because he's mad at him. I mean, he obviously feels incredibly betrayed, but he still wants to take care of this on his own. So Steve comes in and Steve's found out about Eddie and asks him about it. And Jimmy lies and says that, no, I gave him the money. I have friends. I got the money for him. Instead of saying that, yeah, I know Eddie set me up. He covers for him. Part of that is so he could handle it himself, I think. But the other part of that, I think, is because Eddie is still his friend. When the call comes in that Eddie's been murdered, they take Jimmy out to that scene, Steve and Jimmy go, and you can see how devastated he is by his friend's death. So he might have been incredibly angry with him, maybe even hated him in that moment. But in the end, that was still his friend. Of course, Steve tells him, go home and don't leave and let us take care of it, which of course he listens about as well as Steve listens. Meanwhile, Chin manages to find that in his struggle, Eddie has ripped the button off of somebody's coat jacket. So they have a little bit of evidence, but they also have a witness and she's probably my favorite witness they have ever interviewed, ever. But a little while ago, I was sitting out there enjoying myself and they threw that poor man out of the window. Who, who, who did you see, Mrs. Quinn? Two men. He really fought with them, grabbing, holding on. But they just threw him out. Do you think you could identify them? Well, if I should ever see them again. The woman is just so casual about saying, I was out there just enjoying my coffee and they chucked this poor man over the balcony. It's like saying, yeah, I was standing there and they just started throwing water balloons. She's just so nonplussed about the fact that a man was murdered in front of her. But you know what? A witness is a witness and it gives 5-0 a little more evidence against Colfax and his goons, which they need in order to get Jimmy off the hook. Then they go back to the Royal Navy guy, the expert, because it turns out that his specialty was donning a wetsuit and blowing things up. And they find out that he was on a fishing charter that night, but the logs don't add up. And the person who rented his charter was a Colfax employee. Danny and Kono go and talk to him on his boat and find one of the army guys there. Turns out that the truck that they're looking for that would have transported the explosives was the army guy's truck, which happens to be parked outside of that boat. And so they bring those guys into 5 headquarters and start questioning them. And then the army guy breaks like a crystal vase, mostly because he feels guilty about the fact that there was a night watchman inside. But now we know that we have two men who are willing to testify against Colfax and we have some evidence against him. So now it's a matter of getting to Colfax before Jimmy does. Because now not only is Jimmy looking to clear his own name, he's also out for vengeance. Now I won't tell you how this all ends, but I will say that it comes down to some karate chops and a shootout. else is a blast? This guest cast. Let's take a closer look at them. As I said, Jimmy was played by Ray Danton. This is his first of three episodes. He was Nifty Cronin on The Alaskans. He also turned up in episodes of 77 Sunset Strip, Bat Masterson, Hawaiian Eye, Surfside 6, Maverick, Laramie, Wagon Train, Honey West, The Man from Uncle, Ironside, Dan August, Night Gallery, Police Story, McLeod, Cannon, The Rockford Files, and Barnaby Jones. 
He appeared in the movies Six Pack Annie, Apache Blood, Triangle, Tiger of Terror, The Longest Day, A Majority of One, A Fever in the Blood, The Rise and Fall of Legs Diamond, The Beat Generation, I'll Cry Tomorrow, The Looters, and as I said, Secret Agent Super Dragon. He was also in the TV movies A Very Missing Person, Runaway, and Our Man Flint, Dead on Target. He also has 24 directing credits, including episodes of Magnum P.I., Cagney and Lacey, Fame, Quincy, M.E., The New Mike Hammer, and the TV movie Return of Mickey Spillane's Mike Hammer. He also has directing credits for another TV movie called Bender. And he has directing credits for the movies Psychic Killer, Deathmaster, and he directed new footage for the movie Crypt of the Living Dead. Colfax was played by Paul Stevens. This is his second of two episodes. We also saw him in Leopard on the Rock. Eddie was played by Tommy Fujiwara. This is his fourth of 24 episodes. Lyons, the former Royal Navy officer, was played by Bruce Wilson. This is his fourth of seven episodes. We also saw him in Leopard on the Rock. The bartender was played by Larry Plunkett. This is his first of 16 episodes. He was also in the Hookman episode of the 2010 reboot. Joey was played by Daniel Calacchini Jr. This is his second of three episodes. We also saw him in Strangers in Our Own Land. Professor Hale was played by Richard Morrison. This is his first of five episodes. He also showed up in episodes of I Spy, Daniel Boone, Mission Impossible, Kojak, Dark Justice, ER, Beyond Belief, Factor Fiction, and Unsolved Mysteries. He was apparently in the same episode as Matthew McConaughey, but I don't think he was in the same story. He also appeared in the movies When the Bow Breaks and The Dark Backward, and he was in the TV movie Death Dreams. Sergeant Dobbs was played by Robert Harker. This is his third of nine episodes. We also saw him in Ways of Love and Which Way Did They Go? Zane was played by Robert M. Luck. This is his third of 12 episodes. We also saw him in Tiger by the Tail and Pray Love Remember, Pray Love Remember. Sutton was played by Steve Merrick. This is his first of three episodes. He also appeared in episodes of The New Interns and Search. And he appeared in the movie Long Days of Hate. Phelps was played by Mitch Mitchell. This is his third of 15 episodes. We also saw him in Just Lucky, I guess, and The One with the Gun. And Briggs was played by Wallace Langford. This is his first of four episodes. He was also in four episodes of Magnum P.I. And that is The Last Eden. I kind of like this episode. I like the twist on the ecology greed theme that we're used to seeing in that it's the people who are apparently for the environment still finding a way to cruelly profit off of it. And I do like Ray Danton quite a bit, so I'm not going to be mad about anything that he's in, even if the secret agent super dragon theme plays in my head the whole time. And once again, we get to see how much Steve hates a neat case and how suspicious he is of things being easy. So we do get to see some really interesting police work, especially when they're going out and questioning people. The way that it comes together, I quite like. And of course, we have the tragedy of Eddie, which is really a very heartbreaking aspect to the episode because we don't know the Night Watchman. We feel bad about him for being blown up, but poor Eddie was just riding the struggle bus from the get-go and he unfortunately met a horrible end. It definitely lent a more emotional weight to the episode that I think grounded it quite a bit. 
and gave it that nice little twist that brought it down from being sort of bigger and more corporate to something more personal. This one is worth a watch. Mr. McGarrett, he's in a pretty lousy mood. Just thought I'd tell you. You told me. And that is episode 31 of Bookum Dano. I think I liked The Last Eden a little bit better than I liked the late John Louisiana. But like I said, they're both worth your watch. You're not going to go wrong with Don Stroud and Ray Danton. You're just not. And I think they're both also interesting takes on what could be very familiar stories. In The Late John Louisiana, we have a witness that needs to be illuminated, but we have the twist of the hitman falling in love with her. And then with The Last Eden, we have corporate greed, but the twist is that it's in favor of environmentalism rather than against the environment and maintaining the status quo. So they're both fairly solid, pretty standard Hawaii Five-0 episodes. They're not flashy, they're not loud, but they're, they're solid and they're both worth the watch. And I hope you do watch them. I hope you watch every single episode while you're listening to me ramble on about them. This show is definitely worth your time. And not just so you get my stupid jokes. But hey, thank you for listening. I always appreciate your ears, even if you don't laugh at my jokes. I don't take that too personally. If you would like to find me on The Quiet Space online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano and all of my podcast ventures and all of my rerun junkie content. Check all of that out. If you're in the mood for just some regular drippings from my brain, then head on over to kikiwritesabout.com. And of course, if you want my brain drippings in real time, you can get that by following me on Twitter at kikiwrites. So find someone that loves you so much they'll fake your death. And make sure your friends are debt-free. Until next time, aloha!